verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not, is it nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Give me a moment here to get my jewelry on. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, music team. Those of you serving upstairs in the sound booth and ushers and greeters, deacons, thank you. And my name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. I want to add my welcome to what you heard this morning, especially to those of you who are guests or maybe visiting with us the first time. We're in the book of Haggai this morning, if um, you need a few minutes to find that in your Bible or on your device, but um, would you pray with me just for a moment? Well, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for um, the gift of your revelation through your son Jesus, the living word, and through the written word that's been passed down to us, Lord, that we can... Um, just have greater access to uh, who you are and your heart and your character and what it is that you call us as your people to be. So, Lord, quiet our hearts and our minds this morning. Um, help us to see and to hear all that it is that you have to say to us this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Well, where where do you call home? I grew up in a military family. I, I had my own career in the military. I've lived a lot of places and countries in my life. And so when somebody asks me, where are you from? I go through this process in my head um, rather quickly. Well, do you mean where do I live? Where was I born? Where do my parents live? Where did I graduate high school? Where did I live the longest? Um, I find sometimes it difficult to answer that question, probably just overthinking it, to be sure. But home is what we most often think of as the, the place where we find the person or the, the people that we love the most. But it can also be a place, a physical place that you feel 
connected to emotionally, somewhere that you have fond memories of, something, a place that you're happy to arrive back at. As a kid, I grew up in Southern California, and I remember it was many years before I went back there as an adult, and, and I just remember the smell of a creosote bush, most of which don't exist anymore because it's been built over, but, but that memory just, or that smell rather, evoked a memory of comfort for me, and I thought, this, this smells like home to me. Well, as the saying goes, home is where the heart is. It's a phrase generally credited to a first century Roman naval commander, army commander, philosopher, and naturalist that historians refer to as as Pliny the Elder. Trivial note, completely unrelated to the sermon, Pliny's heart stopped working on the beaches outside of Naples as he was rescuing people from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. I don't know why that's interesting to me, but, but the point is, is that what, what we may consider home might not be a building itself. Rather, it's, it's the environment where we experience this sense of security and significance and belonging. The story we read in scripture reveals that God created the heavens and the earth to be our home. And throughout the narrative of the scriptures, we see a number of images. We see a garden as the first home of our proto-parents, Adam and Eve. We see the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet, where God met with the Israelites. And then as we look to the future, we see a city, the new Jerusalem, which is to be our home in the, the new heaven and the earth. Well, God placed his image bearers, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. It was, it was the best home imaginable. Imagine a place where you had to worry about nothing. You had everything you needed to sustain your life. You had a sense of security with all of the provision that God made. You had a sense of significance in that God had invited Adam and Eve to expand the boundaries of the garden. To flourish, to create, and to cultivate, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And they experienced a a deep sense of belonging in the garden. As God met with them daily, and, and walked with them, and talked with them, as we read in the scriptures. And yet, the story of humankind as told in the Old Testament, is, is full of people being made homeless or becoming wanderers as a result of, of not upholding our side of the partnership that we've entered into with God, the Creator. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden for their missteps, their sin, their disobedience. The Israelites wandered through the desert For 40 years, as a people who lived in tents, God gave Moses, during this wilderness experience, instructions to build the tabernacle. It literally means tent of meeting. And wherever Israel camped in the desert as they moved about, the tabernacle was set up as the center of the camp. And the glory of God would fill it, and God and Moses would meet there and speak. You see, for the Israelites in their wilderness journey, 
This tabernacle signified home. No matter where they were or what they were experiencing. Later on in the story of Israel, where he learned that King David designed a temple and his son Solomon built this temple. It was built in the center of Jerusalem and it symbolized an earthly place that overlapped with God's heavenly home. It's the place where God was thought to rule and reign over all of creation, at least symbolically. And then flash forward into the New Testament, Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room on the, on the night before or the night that he was betrayed. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What the Bible narrative shows us is that a home is necessary for human fulfillment. And as we also see throughout the biblical narrative, we're prone to neglect our spiritual responsibilities when it comes to that home. So the question we hope to sort of explore this morning is what, what then are some of the postures and the practices that, that we can inhabit as we participate in God's activity of, of renovating our hearts to be this dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so we continue this morning in our series on the minor prophets, which we've entitled to live justly and to love mercy. We're, we're coming to the end of this series. We, we started long before the fall of Jerusalem. But yet now we find ourselves after the fall of Jerusalem in the timeline. And last week, Mike Strope preached the best sermon we've ever heard on Zephaniah, who prophesied in the southern kingdom before the fall of Jerusalem and Babylonian exile. But now, as we approach the prophet Haggai, now we are in this post-exilic phase. We've jumped forward, if you will, 50 or 60 years. And verse 1 of chapter 1 in, in the book of Haggai sets the scene for us. It says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Well, Darius was a king of Persia, and he had carried on in the tradition that had begun, or rather the decree that had begun years and years before by two kings before him that allowed the Jews in exile in Babylon to return to Jerusalem and to begin to uh, reestablish their homes and their communities. Well, who is Haggai? Well, virtually nothing is known about this prophet except what we learn here. His name means festive. We sang this song about the joy of the Lord. Haggai means festive. We don't really know that there's any import to that. Scholars theorize that he was born perhaps on a, on a Jewish holiday. But he writes three or four, depending on how you, you structure this or interpret it, prophecies to the exiles within a very narrow period of time. It's a four-month period in the year 520 to 519 
B.C. And in this first prophecy, God lodges his complaint to the leaders. Imagine the prophet named Festive, speaking for God, gives you a complaint. His complaint was that the leaders and the people of Judah were neglecting the task of rebuilding the Lord's temple. And to see the broader context, we have to go back about 19 years to October, specifically, of 539 B.C. And this Persian ruler Cyrus, he's just overthrown the Babylonian kingdom. He's now the ruler. Persia now rules over Babylon. And he freed the Jews to return to Jerusalem shortly thereafter. And he'd also promised to help them to rebuild their temple that the Babylonians had destroyed 47 years earlier. We see this story begin to play out in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That book, Ezra, tells us that the first group to return to Jerusalem was about 50,000 exiles. Joshua, the same Joshua whom Haggai is speaking to here, and Zerubbabel, the same Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel, the governor, and the kinsmen, they return and they they build the altar. They begin to make sacrifices and they begin to observe the feasts. And they attempted to begin the rebuilding of the temple, but they got no further than the foundation. When, as the story in Ezra and Nehemiah tell us, they, they encounter opposition by the governor of Samaria who who was not pleased of Judah's new status in the region, and he took every opportunity to oppose them. And it's opposition which continued and increased over the next 17 years, which brings us to the point of where we find ourselves in the story this morning. Look with me at verses 2 through 4 in chapter 1, if you will. You see in In verse 2, the people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They say it's not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. And and what's God's response to them in verse 4? He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Well, last week, Mike Stroh used this wonderful image of a of a home renovation TV show to, to highlight our attraction to this big transformation that gets revealed in the show. But I want to ask you, what, what happens when the big reveal goes wrong? It happens. Google it, not in the service. Imagine that you've turned over your home to extreme makeover home edition. And some weeks later, you're standing on the street with Ty Pennington and your eyes are covered. And Ty and the crowd start shouting, move that bus. And the bus pulls away. And it's not at all what you desired or expected. Or perhaps worse, imagine that you've entered into a partnership with a group of people to renovate your home. You've given them detailed plans on how it should be laid out, how it should be constructed, how it should be furnished, how it should be decorated. Moreover, you've provided them all the necessary resources and backing to accomplish the job. Everything they need, permits, money, materials, labor, 
And as you stand back and observe their efforts, what you find is they're not building your house. Instead, they're using everything you've provided them to renovate and build their own houses. How, how would you react to that? Can you imagine the profound disappointment? The feelings of betrayal? Righteous indignation? Are you, are you ready to hire a lawyer and bring a legal case against them? Can you imagine that? Some of you might have even experienced that. Well, congratulations. You have just empathized, empathized rather with, with God in this story. Verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Sounds really polite, doesn't it? You can imagine like a person with a British accent, this, uh, consider your ways. I think what God's really saying is something a, a lot more direct and terse. But this phrase is a central theme of this book. It's repeated four times throughout the scripture. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider. Consider. And what are the results for the Israelites of not having considered their ways? Verse 6 tells us, God says to them, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You see, brothers and sisters, as we read in, in verses 7 through 8, God, God wants us to glorify him, not ourselves. And when we put our priorities ahead of God's priorities, things may not turn out as though we want them to. Look at verse 9. God says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You see, through a Gentile king, no less, God has brought his people out of exile and delivered them back to Jerusalem, where he's called them to rebuild the temple of God, the center of their community, the center of their worship, the house of God. And what did they do instead? While the Lord's house lay in ruin and neglect, they busied themselves on their own houses, the scripture tells us. They allowed external opposition, discouragement, and self-interest to cause them to procrastinate in doing the work that the Lord had called them to do. Can any of you identify with procrastination? Some of you are a little slow on the hand raise. I'm going to chalk that up to procrastination. Why do we procrastinate? It's not about laziness. You see, one part of this word procrastination is derived from a Latin verb that means to put off until tomorrow. It's a putting off of something. 
But it's more than just voluntarily delaying. The other part of the word is derived from an ancient Greek word that carries the sense of, of doing something against our better judgment. Modern day psychologists say it's a way of coping with challenging emotions and negative moods that are induced by certain tasks. Boredom, anxiety, insecurity, frustration, resentment, self-doubt, and beyond. All of those things I can identify with when I think about the things that I procrastinate and try to explore the reasons why I may do that. In our faith context, the, the religious or excuse me, the term that, that religious thinkers came up with is, is acedia. You and I might hear it more colloquially as the seven, one of the seven deadly sins of sloth. More than laziness, though, it's, it's a lack of care. It's a difficult term to understand and define. It's, it's a lack of care. It's, a, it's an inner emptiness and dejection that made it difficult to attend to the spiritual. For the monks who lived in monasteries in the monastic age when that was a bigger thing, this was their greatest fear, that they wouldn't attend to the spiritual. It's, it's not a lack of activity. It's a lack of will. A lack of will to submit to the difficult task of tending to the spiritual life that leads to the renovation of the hearts. You see, at its core, procrastination or, or acedia is not about our ability to manage time or complex tasks. It's about our emotions and our heart-level desires. It's about our willingness to submit to what we're being called to do. And we, we face this same challenge today with places of worship, which are pulled in so many directions. And when I use this term, places of worship, I mean both the place of worship that's inside of you, in your heart, and the places of worship where we come together as a community. You see, the foundations of God's house, my friends, has been laid in Jesus Christ. But we're prone as a people to neglect the mission of building hearts and building communities. And we neglect it because we want to make ourselves comfortable with the very resources that should be put toward the building of God's house. Well, how how does this come about? Well, the scriptures tell us that it comes in large part from an, an inattentiveness to the state of our own hearts. And I would say human experience agrees. The 17th century Presbyterian pastor John Flavel once wrote, there are some men and women who have, have lived 40 or 50 years in the world and have had scarcely one hour's discourse with their own hearts all the while. Friends, we, we constantly need to grow in our capacity to see our hearts in light of God's hearts. Well, how do the Israelites respond to this in, in what we're looking at today? In verse 12, it says, They obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of the prophet. They obeyed. And the people feared the Lord. They had reverent 
awe for God. They obeyed him. And how does God respond to their step of obedience? We see in verses 13 and 14. He, he responds with an assurance of his presence and an outpouring of his spirit. Well, a month later, Haggai delivers a second prophecy, this time to, to Joshua and Zerubbabel, but he, the word tells us, and to all the people. He says in chapter 2, verses 3, in the first part of 4, he says, be strong. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's addressing this feeling of dejectedness. They're looking at this temple in ruins. They've been there 20 years. They've made no headway. They're remembering the former glory of the temple before it was destroyed by Babylon. And they're disheartened. They're dejected. He says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. It's not... Haggai channeling Newt Rockney. I know that's an aged reference. Okay, Newt Rockney, super popular college football coach, died in a plane crash in 1931. What did Newt Rockney say? He said, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's not what Haggai is saying. That's not what God is saying to the people through Haggai. He's not saying, hey, it's tough. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You see, when the going gets tough, the self-reliant get going on their own way. When the going gets tough, the followers of Christ who consider their ways, they get on their knees or their face. And they surrender all of their circumstances to the wisdom of God and the will of God. The second half of verse 4, what does God say? He says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. He says, work, I'm with you. I, I keep covenant. My spirit remains with you. Have no fear. Well, we've heard this term, Lord of hosts, this, it's a, it's, a way that God is referring to himself. It occurs 230 plus times in the Old Testament, most of it in the prophets. It's an Old Testament description of Yahweh as as the king of the universe or the ruler of all the divine entities and humanity. It's, It's God as the sovereign ruler over all human events. Another way to translate this word host is armies, the Lord of armies. It's this image of a heavenly host of angels who are fighting the spiritual battle and attending to God's people and to him. It's the God who is with us, the Lord of hosts, the God Almighty, the God who is with us and who will never leave us. You see, when the going gets tough, when you're worried about whether your business will survive in COVID or when you lose your job or when 
relationships are strained or estranged, when you're sick and tired, when the going gets tough, there is no greater strength or comfort than knowing that God will never leave or forsake you and me. Look at what he says in in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I will shake all of creation, all of your home." I'll shake it to its foundations. I'll shake the nations. As a blessing to his people. You see, the good news for you and me, friends, is that if we've placed our trust in Christ, and as we heard earlier, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes from God and he, it makes its home in you and me. So a question we need to ask ourselves is, is, have you and I really appropriated this sense of security and confidence and fearlessness? And I don't mean recklessness when I use that term. Hear me, please. Fearlessness, trust in God, respect and reverent awe for God, and a desire to know and do his will. That's fearlessness. Have we appropriated that sense of security and confidence and fearlessness that, that comes from knowing that the God who's, who's created the universe this perfectly powerful, perfectly wise, perfectly present God, the Lord of hosts? Have we, have we appropriated that sense of security? So much so that we could do the hard work of building his house And not our own. Look at verse 9. Chapter 2 verse 9. He says. In this place I will give peace. Declares the Lord of hosts. Now again this word is not just an absence of conflict. It, it, It speaks to the wholeness. Of a flourishing human life. Wholeness. The image of a wall with no cracks or no gaps. This sense of peace that is idealized in in the 23rd Psalm. You see, to to rebuild God's temple is something that we, we do in collaboration with God and in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and with one another. And God promises that he will not fail to complete his work. Jesus tells the apostle Peter, he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God does not need us to do anything to accomplish his tasks. He's invited us into this and it's, that's his will that we would join him in his work. And in the process, he'll transform our hearts. He'll renovate his home within us. In the process. And how will the heart behind our work be judged by God? 
not by the size or the beauty or the power or the influence of our temple, but by the mercy that we have shown to others. In, Jerusalem, in Judaism, the temple was the, this religious, cultural, and national center. It, its layout was a, was a microcosm of the entire heaven and earth. The temple represented God's presence among his people. It's also a symbol that points forward to a worldwide sanctuary. The vision of a, of a worldwide temple that we see in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, in, in which God's presence dwells in every part of the cosmos. See, in Haggai's time, this rebuilding of the temple established a continuity for Israel between the pre-exiled Israel and the post-exiled Israel. In our time, this idea of a temple offers us a vision of life in the presence of God. A presence that God intends to be grounded in the realities of our lives. You see, we as God's people have already begun to be God's end time temple. And through us, God is manifesting his presence to the whole world. You see, the Bible's vision of a church as described as a temple is is not a building. It's people. It's a community. A people called to extend the boundaries of this new garden temple by self-giving, self-sacrificing love until Christ returns. In the New Testament, the letters of Paul and Peter describe the church as an expanding, living temple of witness to God's saving presence in this present age. Well, real quickly, how, how are we to do this? Well, trusting Christ is certainly our starting point, that, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he reigns as, as the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. And then God's spirit, the word tells us, comes to us and dwells in us in the same way that God dwelt in the temples of Eden and Jerusalem. But with God, the Spirit, dwelling in this, then how do we yield to its power and influence and experience this even greater outpouring of grace through his presence in our lives? Well, Paul, in the letter of the Romans, says that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That we literally offer the sum of our whole lives and being. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, materially, we, we give it all to God. If I want to tie back to, which I do, tying back to the exhortations that, that God is giving to the Israelites from the scripture this morning, that we need to consider our ways. How do we consider our ways? We, we remember and we, ref, we remember what God has done. And we reflect on what we're doing. And if we need, we need to repent and to believe in the good news of the kingdom of God. And to renew our faith and increase our strength through the word of God. Through being in community with one another. And through actively living out our faith. 
And we need to be strong. How can you and I be strong? Well, I would submit that it's primarily through praying to God. We draw our strength by submitting our will to his through prayer. God's invited us to this place to have a personal, deeply intimate relationship with him through prayer. And all believers, in one sense, function as priests by offering up prayers to God in our sphere of the spiritual temple as as we exist as kingdom citizens exiled in this fallen world. And then we need to obey, or rather work, which is obedience. We can do the work that God has called us to do. We can be obedient to God. We can live justly and love mercy because God has said, I'm with you. I am with you until the end of the age. At the end of this age, this this fallen world will be renewed and God's perfect kingdom in heaven and on earth will be restored. God's people will be resurrected, will be completely restored to God, will be delivered from exile on this earth, and we will dwell eternally in this worldwide temple of the new heaven and the new earth and enjoy the fullness of God's presence. Well, in the final three verses of this book, the final three verses of chapter 2, God speaks again through his prophet to explain and reinforce to Zerubbabel his promise to, to bless Israel from this day forward. And friends, I want to submit to you that, that the promise for us is that all false power and all false authority will be destroyed. And, and a divine governor with divine authority will indeed take his place over all of Israel and all of the world. You see, home indeed is where our heart is. When we have a regular discourse with our own hearts and when our hearts remain closely knit with the heart of God in Christ, the the big reveal does not disappoint. We can be strong and we can join God in his work without anxiety or fear. For the God who rules over all of human history is with us. May we be a people who consider our ways. May we turn our hearts inside out to build the temple and to worship God through the inextricable love of God and love of neighbor. And may we be strong as we work, remembering God's great promise that he is with us and that he's coming again to establish his perfect kingdom where we will live and reign with him forever. Would you pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father, God Almighty, Lord of hosts, Father, we're so grateful that you have created a home for us, Lord, and that you've invited us, rather you've called us, Your deepest heart's desire is that we would build this home with you. 
Father, you've given us everything that we could possibly need. Help us to see, Lord, that um, how we can grow in our capacity to come alongside you and one another to expand the boundaries of this garden temple. To reveal your heart and character to a fallen world and to be a witness to who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus. Lord, by your spirit this week, give us a fresh capacity to consider our ways to be strong and to work and to remember that you are with us. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand.